There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and on this show, we talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a show about some fascinating words related to politics and government in the United States, like why we refer to our political parties as red and blue, why we call the president POTUS, and more. I hope you enjoy it. Nick Capodice and Hannah McCarthy from the Civics 101 show on New Hampshire Public Radio are with me today. They are now doing a four-episode series called The User's Guide to Democracy that will appear on the Unknown History podcast feed from my network, quickanddirtytips.com. And they have some interesting stories about government and political words to tell us today. Hi, Hannah and Nick. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. We're thrilled to be here. An utter delight, Mignon. Lovely to meet you as well. You bet. We are so excited about your series for us. So, and you definitely hooked me with the idea of explaining why the colors red and blue are tied to our two different political parties in the United States. So what's that story to get us started? It is a super duper new phenomenon. The idea of red and blue being sort of how we define ourselves in the two parties. Um, this uh, color TV started to enter the American household in the 1960s and 70s. Ah. Uh, and before that, there was no sort of color relationship between the parties. Uh, but then when the color TVs hit, uh, canny news, news works decided to, uh, you know, put yellow for one candidate or blue for another candidate, but it was entirely chosen at random. Uh, the first time a Republican was red, they said they chose it because it was red R for Reagan. Ah. Um, But uh, 1992, uh, one network used uh, red for Bill Clinton. So it's that recent. Wow, I had no idea it was so recent. Yeah, it it wasn't until 1996 that all three major networks used uh, the red and blue that we're familiar with today. But the big change, the huge watershed moment that made us a red and blue nation was the 2000 election. uh, When a whole country stared for a solid month at a red and blue map waiting to hear, depending on the results of a Florida ballot, uh, whether Al Gore or George W. Bush become the next president of the United States. Right, the hanging chads. The hanging chads, which we don't (laughs) use anymore, thank God. Uh, David Letterman was the first in response. He made a joke. was like, oh, okay, well, the the blue states can have Al Gore as president and the red states are going to have George W. as president. And that was the first time that the expression red states and blue states was used. And it has become part of our vernacular. Now we have red hats and blue waves. But it's all thanks to this month of staring at a polarized map. That is amazing. That just blows my mind that it's so recent. I I would have imagined it went back 100 years or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. 
What a great story. Okay, so something something besides uh, hanging chads came out of that 2000 election debacle. <laughs> <laughs> right, a complete revamping in, of our ballot system, yeah. Wow, cool. And color TV, neat. Okay, so now I think that you were going to explain whether our nation is a democracy or a republic. I see people fight about that all the time online. Yeah, they don't just fight about it online with each other. They fight about it uh, with us a little bit, though at a distance. (laughs) So when Nick and I first started hosting the show, we've got this tagline that we're a show about the basics of how our democracy works. Um, And we have listeners write in with, well, I mean, if you're going to write or talk about how our democracy works, maybe you should first get it right that we are not a democracy. We are a republic. Um, And so this was something that in the early days, this is a semantics debate we would take to almost every expert who we interview, just asking, well, are they right? What are we? Uh, (laughs) So before I dig into it, I want to start off by saying we are both. Um, And the framers did indeed refer to us as both a democracy and a republic. Both are correct. But why do we ask why America is a democracy, Um, whether it is a democracy? So that sort of gets at the very root of the word. So if you look at democratia, right, from demos and kratos, from power and people or people in power, that was a Athenian democracy. That was the word used in Athens, Greece, to describe a form of government where the people were actually voting for what happened, and they were in ultimate political control of the political system. We refer to this as a direct democracy. Is the United States a direct democracy? It is absolutely not a direct democracy by and large, right? It is not uh, an assembly of citizens getting to make decisions about what happens to them. Uh, But our nation is founded on these kind of groundbreaking principles at the time in Athens, Greece, of democracy, rule by the many instead of the one. Um, So the ultimate idea we had was to keep the power out of too few hands, to avoid tyranny, to avoid a king, to avoid uh, anyone sort of having too much power in controlling the people because we didn't like how that went down when we were under British rule, right? Right. Um, So our first uh, iteration of a constitution, our first form of self-governance here in the United States was the Articles of Confederation, which gave the states a great deal of power um, and the federal government comparatively little. But the Articles of Confederation didn't really work out. We didn't have an executive. Congress was only empowered to do things if the states told them they could. So the framers get together in Philadelphia in 1787, and the goal of this new form of government is actually to make the United States less democratic. So this is this is a myth that uh, that a handful of our experts have tackled, which is like, the Constitution was not actually made to make us more free. It was made to make us less democratic because the Articles of Confederation contained an excess of democracy, and it was Whoa. really difficult to run the nation that way. Wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, So we did, you know, so you do have, and on both sides of the constitutional debate, both by people who wanted a Bill of Rights and people who did not want a Bill of Rights, people who wanted more power and rights for the people and who didn't, both sides also wanted the excess of democracy to be reeled in. Um, So, for example, the Electoral College was explicitly designed to create this barrier between the voting masses and the seat of governing power, the executive. Um, But still, 
Our constitutional framers did, in fact, give us a democracy. It's not a direct democracy. It's a democracy nonetheless. It is a representative democracy where the people are empowered to vote for individuals who represent them in the lawmaking process. And so when people say, well, that's not a democracy, that's a republic, they are correct, but it's still a democracy. It's a representational democracy, a representative democracy. So um, just to be clear, like what document yeah. was it what document was it that technically made us a republic? So the constitution that we operate under today, which is the longest continuously uh, used constitution in the world, so obviously it kind of worked out, did make <laughs> us this different form of democracy, this republic that we are. Um, but it is a false dichotomy to say that it's either one or the other. It actually is both. Okay. So yeah. I bet that isn't going to solve the argument, but it's no. super interesting. <laughs> that was really, really interesting. And so we're talking about the Constitution. And one thing I know is at the time the Constitution was written, all the nouns were capitalized in English, mm -hmm. which, you know, we don't do anymore, but it's sort of an interesting way that language has changed since then. And um, you were bringing up that the Constitution used gendered pronouns. So do you want to talk about sort of that and what that means? Yeah, I would love to. This is something that when, when we were writing the book was really a thorn in my side because I was writing about the executive. And what troubled me was that in the Constitution, the executive, as well as all members of the Senate, the House, Congress generally, all office holders written in the Constitution are written as he, him, his. Okay, right? tell everyone what your book is. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, let me start off with that. Our book uh, is A User's Guide to Democracy, How America Works. Okay. So Good. if I was going to attempt to explain how the executive worked uh, and sort of abiding by the language of the Constitution, how was I going to do that? I ended up using he with the very important to me footnote that I am only using he because the Constitution does. And in fact, she's and they's, et cetera, of the world have been throwing their hat in the ring for a very long time. Um, I want to really warmly recommend this very short beautifully written paper called Constitutional Pronouns by a professor at Duke Law School, Daryl Miller. Uh, and he starts by exploring the we, as in we the people, this non-gendered pronoun um, that was by no means inclusive when the Constitution was written because African-Americans, Black Americans, women were not included in that we as a, a voting body. Um, but we the people sort of transformed that word. Um, and the same goes for the, the he, his, him uh, of the Constitution, the original way that we described these offices. Um, you know, when women were first arguing for suffrage in the United States, they said, you know, he has been a term that has been used as a catch-all for all humans for a very long time. And it does, in fact, go back to, I believe, the, the 16th century, even earlier than that. Um, so he refers to all sexes, and um, they were saying, if there's a he in my state constitution, it shouldn't prevent me from voting. And mm. then we had the first woman elected uh, to her House of Representatives in 1914, Jeanette Rankin. That's four years before the passage of the 19th Amendment. Wow. And by the time you had women given the vote, more and more women in Congress, you had very few scholars arguing that that was somehow in violation of the Constitution. And in fact, originalists and anti-originalists agree that the use of the term he in no way bars women 
from running for office, from holding office in the United States. It's widely accepted by most mainstream constitutional scholars that that he is a catch-all. And the same should apply for transgender, non-binary, non-gender conforming people who have also been running for and winning office for decades, if not longer, in the United States. That's fascinating. I mean, I would have thought that in the distant past, they would have used that as an argument to try to keep women out. They're saying like, it, but they never did. Is that right? Oh, no. The argument was certainly used. But as early as the early 1900s, you had even male constitutional scholars arguing that, in fact, because he had for so long been used as, in some ways, a non-gendered term, mm-hmm. uh, that we should not read the Constitution that way. And you know, I think an argument could be made for, okay, then for those people who abide by originalism in the Constitution, maybe they have to reconsider what originalism actually means, given that he is so widely used in the Constitution. But generally, we accept that he does not bar people of other genders from actually running for and holding office. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about SCOTUS, POTUS, and F. DOTUS. You may not have heard of that one. Oh, that's so fascinating. So they they sort of uh, go by what the word meant at the time, and at the time it was all-inclusive. And language changes so much over time. I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday about how long, long, long ago, but the word girl used to mean any child. Like, it, it was mm. it was all-inclusive. Yeah, no, that. really, really long fast. time ago. Like, that's long, so interesting. hundreds, maybe a thousand years ago, but it's very interesting. So, yeah, language changes, and if you, you have to look at what the word meant at the time it was used. Um, to get the correct interpretation. So that's fascinating. So, okay. So then how about the Declaration of Independence? You like mentioned that it was written as an office memo and I'm dying to know what that means. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is, uh, we we did a whole chapter on the Declaration and we've had some great scholars. We did it in some episodes on the Declaration as well for our our, uh, podcast. But um, it's this thing that we think of as written in flowery language that lives on walls and it looks just beautiful and the prose is very difficult to sort of crack into, but it is one of the most straightforward documents that I've, it's such a legal document. It's an office memo. It consists of four parts. Uh, and those parts are sort of like, uh, there's a preamble and that's sort of like, and the preamble is like, so when you're going to break up, it's probably a good idea to say why, right? This is the greatest, <laughs> the Declaration of Independence is the greatest breakup letter ever written. The preamble is just like, and then the second part is a statement of human rights. And that's like a little, a little lesson in government. It's, Hey, Government is here to do some very specific things. It's to protect these certain inalienable rights. And if a government doesn't do that, it's our job as a people to rise up and replace it. That's part two. Um, The third thing is like the reason. Well, why are we doing this? Here are the grievances. There's the long airing of the grievances. And the the grievances (laughs) get get a bit of a short shrift. Like they're not read as often as uh, some of the rest of the declaration. But they're the part where you can really find some very good and very bad parts of American history. Uh, And then the last part is sort of the, because of all this, we're doing this. Uh, (laughs) We are therefore adopting Richard Henry Lee's resolution to sort of sever all allegiance with the British crown uh, and all ties between us and Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. Um, One thing I didn't know until fairly recently about this sort of declaration is that it was um, not, it was not signed on the 4th of July. That is another great American myth. Um, Declaration wasn't signed until... (laughs) People don't know. They think around sometime in August by the time they got everybody's signatures on it. Um, We actually 
adopted Lee's resolution on July 2nd, 1776. The July 4th is the day the official draft of the declaration was approved by the Continental Congress. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, far less significant than, yep, we all agree we're going to become the United States of America. You know, uh, that kind of reminds me yeah. of writing a book. Like there's never a moment when your book is done or, done. You, <laughs> you know, like you get the first draft and then you get the copy edits and then you get the, the um, author review copy, which has the cover, but it's not the final version. And then like by the time you get the, the physical finished book and it's in, it's like you've seen it so many times, like you can't really even say what the date is that it's published. And even on the publication date, it often doesn't show up in stores that date because they haven't unpacked the boxes yet. <laughs> so it's, it's like this slippery, like who knows when it was even published. <laughs> you are explaining our lives exactly right now. I mean, yeah, we're looking at our, we're already talking about the second printing and yeah. the typo that we're going to fix right. the it's one time. An emotional roller coaster. Lowering <laughs> upon our house. Yeah. So, and uh, I guess, well, the, la- the last thing I do want to add to the declaration is that I don't know if you're familiar with like any first folio Shakespeare work, you know, the way the a bunch of actors got together for, you know, pals of Shakespeare and they put together the first folio, which is okay. sort of how they remembered these plays were to, were when they were in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at them, Hannah and I both come from an acting background as well. Okay. But when you look at them, the instructions for what to do are written in the text. If it's a capital letter, say it this way. If there's a comma, do this. Like mm-hmm. as little work as possible for the actors so they can do as many shows as humanly possible. The declaration, likewise, was meant to be read out loud. Oh. Um, the first printing was not written in cursive. It was typewritten. It was uh, printed by a wonderful printer by the name of John Dunlap. These are called the Dunlap broadsides. They're very rare. They feature heavily in uh, National Treasure. Uh, and <laughs> these broadsides were typed up and you know, meant to be read on steps. They were meant to be read in steps of state houses, uh, to be read to armies who were about to fight. They, they were not to be looked at from afar like we look at it today. And if you look at the original Dunlap broadside, you really get a new feeling for what this declaration was. Uh, one last thing, one copy found its way on a boat um, to be read by George III himself. And oh, wow. I just wish I could have seen that when he <laughs> read it for the first time. Because <laughs> he got the breakup letter. <laughs> he got the breakup letter, yeah. And he, he went to his chamber with his pillow by himself for a long time. <laughs> Ate a pint right of ice now. cream. Probably not on a ship. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, now let's talk about these abbreviations like SCOTUS and FLOTUS and POTUS. And and my favorite is BOTUS. I don't know if you know this, but Mike Pence has a pet rabbit and he's they, they call him BOTUS for Bunny of the United States. Oh. <laughs> so, so I want to hear about SCOTUS, FLOTUS, POTUS, and BOTUS. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's very funny. Um, so this, the first time I ever heard POTUS was during, I don't know if you are a West Wing fan, Mignon, but the first time. Okay. So the first episode, you've got Rob Lowe speaking to this woman and he's, he's looking at, it would have been his pager, not his cell phone. I don't remember exactly when the first episode was broadcast, (laughs) but he refers to POTUS and she says, tell your friend he's got a funny name. And he says, no, 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 no. He's not my friend. He's my boss. And it's not his name. It's his title president of the United States. And then the theme sweeps in and that's how you find out this is going to be a show about the president of the United States, aside from the title West Wing. Uh, But so (laughs) (laughs) these days um, you hear POTUS all over the place. You also hear uh, SCOTUS, uh, 
FLOTUS, FDOTUS, and I should clarify, we're speaking about President of the United States, Supreme Court of the United States, uh, First Lady of the United States, First Daughter or First Dog, depending on who you're talking to, of the United States. Um, and these Oh, terms, how do you say that one? For, so that would be F FDOTUS. Which is a little, a little cumbersome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've also heard like uh, TOTUS for transcriber of the United States, CODIS for constitution of the United States. People oh, are funny. fairly liberal with these abbreviations. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, but the first usages were back when telegraphed messages were the, the quick and dirty way of getting a message across. But the telegraphs were uh, charged for by length. So it is both cheaper and a little more secretive, a little more cryptic to send a message about the president or the Supreme Court by saying POTUS or SCOTUS. Um, the first usage was actually not POTUS, but was SCOTUS. Uh, and that's listed in this really uh, great little book, The Phillips Telegraphic Code for Rapid Transmission by Telegraph, um, which suggests using SCOTUS. And then POTUS showed up a few years later. So this is like in the late 1870s, um, between 1879, 1895. And FLOTUS, for First Lady of the United States, doesn't come around until they think the... um, the Secret Service was using FLOTUS as Nancy Reagan's code name. So that wouldn't have been until the 1980s. And then things really started to blow up. You started seeing POTUS and SCOTUS used fairly, fairly regularly, FLOTUS used fairly regularly. And then you had uh, V POTUS for Vice President of the United States, which is just sort of cumbersome the same way that F DOTUS is. Yeah. Uh, so we tend to go for the much more elegant roll off the tongue VEEP for vice president of the United States. Yeah. Um, and so where does that come? When did that start? Do you know? I honestly, Mignon, I don't know when Veep was first <laughs> okay. used. I'm afraid. That's okay. Do you I know, do Nick? Say, no, I don't know. But I oh. was quite shocked when we were getting our book uh, copy edited that whenever we wrote out Veep, we spelled it out V-E-E-P, like the TV show. And he said, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's just the abbreviation. Um, or that's, you know, that's how you hear it. It's actually written out VP and it's just pronounced Veep. Which I wouldn't I w- even know. Oh, go ahead, Minion. No, I would write it V-E-E-P. I yeah. would too. Yeah. But uh, he said, so this, is a, this, was a, this, this guy is a political scientist, so I went with what he said. Yeah. But it's, so I wouldn't know how to classify that, right? Because, so when you're classifying um, POTUS or, uh, or, or SCOTUS, those are acronyms, right? They are mm-hmm. comprised of the parts of the phrase as well as pronounced as that phrase is written out. And then the other one is the initialism, right? So like CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Uh, Right. But so what then is VEEP? Because it's VP, (laughs) but you're not, that's not how you would pronounce VP. That's a great question. You know, the same thing came up with um, FBI. I say FBI, but apparently some people say FIBI. No. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't know what to call that, the way they pronounced that. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, not I'm sure, sure there are some theories out there, but. Yeah. yeah. So let's end today with, um, you had some Supreme Court lingo, and there was one oh, that sure. looked really interesting, but that I had never seen or heard before. It's, I don't even know if I'm going to say it right. It's oys, oys, oys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yay. Oh, yay. O-Y-E-Z okay. is oh, yay. So it is the, uh, 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 so it's part of the chant at the start of every Supreme Court the traditional chant is uttered, which is the Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. 
All persons having business before the Honorable Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States in this honorable court. Um, oh, yeah, it's the plural, plural imperative form of, uh, for the French, ouir, O-U-I-R, to hear. So OA is like, listen up, hear ye. Like, everybody listen at the kitchen table. Oh, yeah. The Supreme Court is about to talk. Oh, wow. And that's a great way to end because I know that a lot of um, government words did come into English through French after um, William the Conqueror took over England and French became the official language in England for a couple hundred years. And at that point, like a lot of government-related words like jury and parliament and things like that came into English. So it makes sense that it would come from French for our Supreme Court. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We are really excited about your um, User's Guide to Democracy series for Unknown History for Quick and Dirty Tips. And that's the name of your book, too. So when when is your book out? And we just said who knows what the publication date is, but what is the official publication date? The official date is September 8th. Excellent. Very excited and very nervous. (laughs) No, it'll be great. Everyone go check out their book, The User's Guide to Democracy. Nick and Hannah, thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, Where else can people find you online? Oh, yeah. Great question. So uh, if you want to find our website, that is civics101podcast.org. That's the real place to go if you want the information that we are regularly disseminating. Um, But we are also, if you want to listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Excellent. Thanks again for being here with me today, The User's Guide to Democracy. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.